for his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of a, of a woman. Uh, for as a woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman, and all things are from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, uh, it is to her glory, for her hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, the difficulty with this passage is people get distracted by the whole head covering thing and forget what is being discussed, which is authority. Okay, the head covering is an illustration of the authority. The head covering is cultural, the authority is not. Okay, that's what we, we, you want to hang on to with this. And, and, and it's easy to demonstrate. Uh, in our society, once upon a time, everyone wore hats. And I, the, maybe the greatest illustration is the nurse's hat. Right, that, that little white, funny looking hat that nurses wore that you knew, oh, that's a nurse because she's wearing the hat. That is, that is the kind of cultural thing that, that is happening that, that was relevant in Corinth but is not relevant to us. To us today, a hat in America means nothing unless it says, go Seahawks, okay? <laughs> Sorry. You know, some things are just hard to hold down. Anyway, um, the, the, hat, the hat doesn't symbolize, in America, there are some hats that still do, the, the, the police officer's hat, the fireman's hat, but, but for most part, hats don't represent authority in America the way they did. It's a cultural thing, but what it is representing, the authority, is not cultural. Okay, so let's take this back and apply it to the position of a woman as a worship leader. Here's what we, after discussing about this passage and, and about the issue of come to the conclusion, we meaning the elders and I, is that we asked Annie to be worship leader and she is working under our authority. And if a woman does have her head covered, which represents authority, then she is allowed to pray or lead, or I didn't say lead worship, pray or, or testify in, in a, 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 a service. And so we see that we, we want to make it clear that she is working under our authority. Okay? Uh, we are not dismissing the passages or, or the, what I believe is a clear teaching of a woman's, men's place of leadership in a church. Right? Uh, but we are saying Annie, as under our authority, is absolutely legitimate as a worship leader. And, and so whether, whatever you think of that, you may think this whole thing is just Lulu, you got all the fruitcakes. <laughs> you, you may think we made a big issue out of nothing. I don't know if we did or not, but we did have the issue. We mentioned it. We've, this, as far as I'm concerned, we've solved it. Uh, and so Annie will continue as our worship leader. And uh, because she's under our authority, by the way, she's also under our protection. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have an issue, it, it's also consistent with our Constitution, which says the worship leader shall be appointed by the elders. Uh, and so uh, the worship leader is under the authority of the elders by both Scripture and Constitution. And so if you have an issue with worship, bring it to the elders. We're not going to be angry, <laughs> but we will try to deal with it as according to our authority. So, Okay, so hopefully that puts that to bed and we're done with that. But we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I always struggle trying to find a new series to preach uh, or a new book to preach. And I, having done Revelation and then the What and Why series, I was struggling trying to figure out what to preach. 
And one thought that kept nagging me in the back of my head was, well, I preached through the whole New Testament now. If I started again and started in the same place, I'd start with 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians was the first book I preached when I came here, lo, those many years ago. It was just fresh off the presses back then. <laughs> and and I, remember, I remember very well the reason I chose to preach it. Because of all the books of the New Testament, the 1 Corinthians was the one that scared me the most. And I thought, if I'm going to be a pastor... I'd better be able to deal with all of Scripture, so I'm going to deal with the book that scares me the most. And, and so I did. Uh, and, and I don't, I, actually, I give guys the other advice now, the opposite advice. I've, I've advised more than one young pastor, pick something you're comfortable with to start with. Because you are already dealing with a lot of fears when you step up here. <laughs> don't add to them just because you're trying to prove something. But uh, that's one of the reasons, but that's not the only reason, because I was throwing around a lot of options. I was thinking about it, and I was praying about it. And here's what came to me. 1 Corinthians is maybe the most relevant book in the Bible to our world today, to the church in our world today. It is maybe the most relevant uh, book. One of the rules of preaching, one of the, the standard principles they tell us, uh, and this is gonna, may sound a little bit funny, but to preachers is you have to go through Corinth to get to, and it is fill in the blank. In other words, to, in, our case, in our case, it would be you have to go through Corinth to get to Davenport. If we're in Spokane, you have to go through Corinth to get to, Dav or to Spokane. And what that means is, first we have to find out what the letter meant to the church it was written to before we can understand what it means to us. We have to know what it meant to them. And, and that makes a lot of sense, especially in a, li a, a world where a lot of people say, this is what it feels like to me. We are not allowed to say, this is what it feels like to me when we're preaching God's word. We are, what we have to say is, this is what it means. This is what it says. And we start with, what did this say to the Corinthians? Because when this started out, it was not a, a letter to be included in the Bible. It was a letter written to a church in Corinth. And it was written for a purpose to deal with specific issues. And, and we need to recognize that. And, and then we are able to understand what it means for us. Uh, but what we find, we, we, we're, so we're going to look at Corinth socially. We're going to look at Corinth uh, uh, religiously. What we find is that when we look at Corinth, we're already there. there. There's not a whole lot of difference between Corinth and the United States, except for size and, and potential of of doing things. Uh, we'll find that this letter is important to us because we live in Corinth, okay? So, start with meet Corinth. I want to, uh, let me read just a little bit, verses 1 through 3, because that's all I'm actually immediately dealing with today. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. By the way, we don't know anything else about Sosthenes. Anyway, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So all we really have here is this is written to you, church of Corinth. Okay, first of all, Corinth was a wicked place. This was a wicked place. Uh, it, it, first of all, for, for, for a very variety of reasons, first of all, it is a port city. Now, there is no law on any books anywhere that says a port city has to be a wicked city, <laughs> uh, but they tend to be that way for a lot of reasons. Uh, it has a lot of potential for wickedness. There is a lot of potential for money to be made by wickedness, and there are a lot of people willing to be wicked to make money. And, and so port cities tend to get that. Port cities are where sailors come in who have been off at sea for X amount of time and now have money in their pockets and don't have family there. 
right? Don't have established family, friends, and relationships. So you take that connection, young men, money, and freedom to do what they want with it, and they tend to want things that they might not ought to want, <laughs> if that you can handle my proper grammar for that. Uh, the, the, these, these are not necessarily godly p things. At this time, at this time, a lot of people were very religious, but almost no one was Christian. This was written about 60 A.D. It's, it's 30 years since Christ was crucified, a thousand miles away, right? Uh, Christianity is growing, Christianity is coming, but Paul brought the gospel to Corinth just a few short years before this, and Corinth is not a Christian city, and the sailors on the Mediterranean are not Christian people, and Christianity has not yet made its impact on the world. It's still just bar barely beginning to do this. So these are not godly people. And if, even if they were religious, according to their various religions, the religions of that day were not moral religions. The shrine prostitutes is a term we hear because it was very real and very rampant at that time. And the things we say are unlawful, unlawful they say were worship. And you go, how does that happen? It's disgusting. You go, what's wrong with these people? So, so these people have been paid. There's money burning a hole in their pockets. And what are they going to do? They go out into this port city, happens to be Corinth, and how are they going to spend their money? And, and that is what they're going to do because there are people willing to cater to what they want to make money. That is Corinth. That is where we are. It is, there were a lot of port cities, but you know, Corinth was notorious for pandering to sin. And so I got one of my big fat uh, books. By the way, this is just A through C of this big fat book. <laughs> and I thought I'd share with you a little bit of what it says about Corinth. In Roman times, which is what we're talking about, the city was notorious as a place of wealth and indulgence. To live as a Corinthian meant to live in luxury and immorality. As a seaport, it was a meeting place of all nationalities, and it offered all of the attendant vices. The temple, the temple of Aphrodite on the Acrocorinth was unique in Greece. Its priestesses were more than a thousand hierodouloi, or sacred slaves, who engaged in prostitution. That's Corinth. That's the city that we're talking about uh, in, in, at this time. Corinth was notorious for these things. It was a place It used the word indulgence. Think of indulgence as the opposite of restraint, right? Uh, restraint or, or restriction on one side, indulgence on the other side. Corinth was a place where restraints were thrown off and indulgence was welcomed and embraced. Uh, it was exactly the opposite of what we ought to have. Now, I say that I want to consider in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the book of Acts a little bit here. Uh, some of the other things we find, some of the other places we find. We're going to start with the book, uh, the play Athens. Uh, Athens in Acts chapter 17. In chapter 17, Paul the Apostle is working his way. He, he, he's working his way from Ephesus up the coast, across Thessalonica, down the, uh, the coast, and there's the Aegean Sea in between. He comes down, and he ends up in Corinth. And, and uh, so he's making his way around there, and, and he's working his way down, and he gets to Athens. And in Athens, we read this, chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. It's just a very small part of what he had to say. But he says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Uh, what you worship, therefore, uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. 
So they had, they had altars in every place, and then they had this, this altars or statues or places of worship, whatever you want to call it. And then they had this one over here that said to, to an unknown God, just in case they missed one. So someone comes along who has a God that they don't have something to, they don't want to offend him also, or either, take a chance on it. So they built an altar, and they said, you can fit in here. It's kind of like the unknown soldier, except it's not nearly so honoring. Uh, and uh, it's to the unknown God, and Paul says, now let me tell you, Paul uses it, he says, now let me tell you about the unknown God, because he's the creator of everything. <laughs> and you go, way to go, Paul, way to use that. But you see Athens. Athens is an example of a place where they said, whatever you want to believe is okay. Now, when I start saying we live in Corinth, you start feeling that. It doesn't matter what you believe or who you worship. So long as you feel comfortable in it, you have your higher power, and that makes you feel good. That's Athens. Okay. Now, we move on a little bit farther. Actually, we're going to, move, we're going to jump around. Ephesus, Ephesus chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 27. So just a couple pages to the right. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 and 27, we find out there was a lot of money to be made in idolatry. Acts 19, 23 to 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was an early phrase to describe Christianity. And so it was, and that's what they knew it as. They didn't call it Christianity. They called it the way or follower. The Christians were followers of the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of this all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger that not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her magnificence, uh, who, she whom we and all of, worship, of Asia worship. And they heard this, they were enraged and cried, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And we find they were bothered because their income was going to be affected. Christianity was going to impact their, uh, their, their, their wealth, their source of income, and so they rebelled against it. They threw a riot, basically, and got in a lot of trouble for it. But uh, we find that, that there was a lot of money to be made in idolatry. There was a lot of money. Ready for this? There was a lot of money to be made in religion. <laughs> Anybody ever hate Christianity because of the money to be made in it? Because I'm, I'm raising my hand on purpose. I'm not just raising my hand like to get you to raise your hand, but because I, that's one of the things I used to despise about Christianity, was I felt it was all about the money. And visitors come into a church, you come in for the first time, and what do you hear? We like your money. <laughs> there was a lot of money to be made in, in religion, and, and that was one of the issues that were going on there. And then we go to Philippi. Philippi, Act chapter 16, we're going to go backwards a little bit. Chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. The reason I have them in this order is because this is the order I thought of them. <laughs> it's not, not any better logical reason. But in Philippi, Paul and Silas are, are, on, are on a missionary journey, and they're preaching Jesus Christ. And this girl who is possessed by a demon begins following them around, telling people to listen to them. She says, listen to these guys. They're servants of the Most High God. And it became so annoying that Paul finally cast the demon out of her. Okay, And, and so we pick that story up in verses 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. 
She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept up for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. At that, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrate tore his clothes, gave orders to beat them with rods. They were, they were arrested, says, for proclaiming things not lawful in their country. What were they proclaiming? Christianity. It was, they said it is unlawful for them to be proclaiming this Christianity. Wow, that is almost spooky. Uh, in fact, it's going to be spookier when we, we look at it a little bit farther on. But, but here's the point I want to make. Isn't it interesting to see that in an ancient world where Christianity was first introduced, almost anything was tolerated except Christianity. Wow! <laughs> they, they tolerated idolatry. They tolerated uh, 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 prostitution. They tolerated every kind of religion. They tolerated every kind of behavior. But they didn't tolerate Christianity when it came in because it disrupted all those things. And they didn't like it. And in this world, here, here's what gets even more about that. In this world where idolatry and indulgence was everywhere, Corinth stood out for uh, indulgence. <laughs> at idolatry. And you go, wow, Corinth was bad. Corinth was bad. And so in Acts chapter 18, still in Acts, we find Paul bringing Christianity to Corinth. He's, he, he, he's on a missionary trip, and he's bringing Christianity to Corinth. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recent, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, uh, because they've been kicked out of Rome, and he goes on. So he met them, and he, and he uh, starts preaching the gospel. So Paul is seeking to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. He's got a very specific goal. He wants to go where the gospel has not already been proclaimed. He wants to take Christianity to brand new places, and one of the places he goes to is Corinth. Uh, and uh, he, he, he does this, you know, and he's on the midst, he's, he's, this is the next step in a mission trip where he has gone to Philippi, he stayed in Philippi. We don't know how long. It doesn't seem like it was a very long time. He made a famous convert named Lydia, worker in purple. Uh, uh, he gets arrested and kicked out of there. He works his way up the coast. He gets to Thessalonica. He's in Thessalonica. We know how long. It says for three Sabbaths he reasoned in the synagogue before the people rioted and chased him out of Thessalonica. So he comes down the other side of the Aegean Sea, and he comes to a city named Berea. And he gets to Berea, and he preaches in Berea. We don't, again, know how long, but when the Jews in Thessalonica heard about it, they sent down to Berea and had him run out of there as well. Okay? He gets run out of Berea. He goes down the coast, gets to Athens, about two-thirds or half the way down the coast. And in Athens, he spends the time. We already read a little bit about that. And he has what is a relatively short stay. And then he, he leaves Athens, and he goes down to Corinth. But when we get to Corinth, Paul stays. Right? Verses 9 to 11 of chapter 18. Uh, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in the city, many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching them 
teaching the word of God among them. And so he stayed a year and six months. He stays 18 months in Corinth, which is the longest he stayed anywhere to this point. He's going to eventually spend more time in Ephesus, but this is the longest he spends anywhere where he's not imprisoned uh, up, up to this point. Uh, in fact, even prison by this point. And, and so he stays. And it's as if God is saying, uh, yeah, this city's bad. When he, you know, he gets to, to Philippi. This city's bad, but it's not bad enough. I want you to keep going. He goes to Thessalonica. This city's bad, but it's not bad enough. Keep going. He goes to Berea. This city's bad, but it's not bad enough. Keep going. He gets to Athens. He says, this city's pretty bad, but keep going. He gets to Corinth. He says, ah, I want you to plant. <laughs> I want you to put down roots. I want you to stay and make a difference. Which, by the way, is, is not an unbiblical principle. Uh, uh, because we don't know why God told him to stay in Corinth, but Paul does give his own statement in 1 Timothy about why Paul says, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy why God chose Paul. And uh, I wonder if it's not the same reason why God chose um, Corinth. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we read this. If I could find Timothy, I'd be happy. Okay, um, I thank him, this is verse 12 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, he says because I was the very worst sinner God could find, he chose me and used me to be his spokesman, to show that if he can change me, he can change anybody. Right? He says, that's why God chose me. I wonder if that's not why God chose Corinth. <laughs> to say, you know, this city, this city is the one that I want to make a difference in. This is the city where I want to make a difference because if I, people will know, if God will go to Corinth, if God will change hearts in Corinth, if God will save the Corinthians, then God will save anyone. Any city, no city is off bounds. And maybe he saved it with that thought in mind. But I want to say the problem wasn't getting the church into Corinth. The problem was getting Corinth out of the church. You know, it's, it's, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians is about the struggle to live in Corinth and not be corrupted by Corinth. And so again, when we start talking about is this book applicable to us today, we live in America, we need to be Im immune to the bad effects of living in America. There are, sorry, I love our country. We live in the best country on the planet, but there are things that are just plain wrong with our country. There are things that are dangerously wrong with our country. There are things that are hugely morally wrong with our country. And we need to be immune to that. Maybe immune is not the right word. We need to be yeah, Teflon. <laughs> we need to be waterproof uh, because we're in the midst of it. John 17. Sorry, we're hitting a lot of passages today. John 17 is, is known as Jesus' high, high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, towards the end of it, he prays a specific prayer for his disciples, but not just for his disciples, but for those who would come later, meaning us. Okay, John chapter 17, uh, I'm going to read verses uh, 15 to 18. Jesus is praying to God 
about his followers. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so we get this whole principle of in the world, but not of the world. And that is what we are called to be, is in the world, but not of the world. The problem is the world wants to come in. Not because the world wants to be part of us, but because the world wants to make us like it. We, we, we can either affect the world or the world can affect us. Reality, probably, there's some of both going away, but as the, as the church lets the world in. And when I say that, I'm not saying we don't want to let sinners in. <laughs> of course we want to let sinners in. <laughs> we just don't want to let their sin in. <laughs> you know, we, we want to, to let their... Jesus Christ hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Why? Because he liked them better? Because he was trying to reach prostitutes and tax collectors. He, was, he, he stayed with them, but he was not tainted by them. He, he, he was there to bless them, not to be infected, if you want to use a word like that. Okay. So uh, it's difficult to have a new life when you're surrounded by your old life. And, and those who have been involved in prison ministry or jail ministry know how true it is that the guy who is acts so, as so good, behaves so well in, in jail and proclaims his faith so well in jail, gets out of jail, and who does he go, where does he go? He goes back to his old environment. And the same guy that, that you sang with and spoke with and prayed with and Bible studied with, uh, gets into the old environment, and he's not strong enough for it. And he, he is corrupted by it. It's hard to, to be out of Corinth when you're, you're living in Corinth. I'm going to take a real quick tour of the issues at Corinth. First of all, chapter 1. We're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for a while. That should make you happy. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first issue, this is, this is interesting, is the desire to look wise. Don't we all like to look wise? We all like to look intelligent. Sometimes it's hard to take the desire to look intelligent and the desire to stand with Christ and make them the same thing. Not because Christianity is foolish, but because people think it is. Right? Uh, they, they think it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand Greeks and for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and or Jews and folly to Gentiles. It's foolishness. Now, Greeks were, Greeks were famous for loving wisdom, by the way. Uh, when Paul talk, talked about Paul uh, meeting with the, the Greeks in Athens on the Areopagus, the Areopagus is where they would get together and discuss philosophy, right? Philosophy, by the way, is a Greek a combination of two Greek words. Philo, meaning love of, and Sophia, meaning wisdom. Sophia, that great, awesome, pretty name. It's, it's a good name. I'm not trying to cr criticize names. Don't, don't get me wrong with that. But it means wisdom. Right? And, and, and it's a beautiful name for a little girl. <laughs> but, but in a society that loves to, loves to look smart, loves to look wise, loves to talk about every new idea, to stand there and say, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. <laughs> you don't look very wise. 
and you start wanting to look wise, and you start trying to look wise, and you start compromising your faith because you don't want to be thought wise. You don't want you don't want to be thought unwise. You don't want to look foolish. So in order to look wise in their eyes, you start compromising compromising your faith. And I say that when I say you, I don't mean you, but but let me tell you, it happens again and again and again. Where Christians in church, we believe in creation, but out there, we believe in evolution. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, I'm and so. I remember a few years ago, and probably probably more than two or three, probably a dozen, because everything seems so much closer than it used to. <laughs> but but there was a someone running for a high office in Canada. I remember seeing this on the news. I don't watch that much news, but I saw this one where the the reporter said, "So you're a Christian?" He says, "Yes, I am." He says, "So I suppose that means you believe in creation," and everybody laughed. And the guy started fumbling over his words as he tried to answer. Now, the funny thing is, I don't know about Canada, in America, you know, there's, there are actually still more people who believe in creation than evolution. They, they have a hard time because in school they can't officially believe in it. But I think the, the greatest position to be would be, yeah, I do. <laughs> you want to talk about it? <laughs> of course, I'm a preacher, not a politician, so, so I don't know. But uh, it's the quickest way to look foolish is, is to do that. Greeks, the, our education system is based on the Greek education system, the Greek love of education. Why do we have sororities and fraternities? And the answer is not drinking and partying. <laughs> but, but theoretically, originally at least, it was designed as for, for places uh, with the, to celebrate this love of learning. It was all based on the Greek system. And, and so they call it Greek role. Uh, so these people, they wanted to look smart. They, they didn't want to look like fools. And Paul says, sorry guys. You're going to have to accept this. You will look like fools to plenty of people. Accept it. The foolishness of Christ is greater than the wisdom of men. The foolishness of Christ is wiser than the wisdom of men. Be thought a fool. Don't Anyway, that's, that's issue number one, is this desire for, for uh, wisdom. Issue number two, chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Immorality is forcing its way into the church, and we are, say, we're winking and pretending it's not an issue. We need to deal with this. It is hard to take a moral stand when you live in a society that justifies every kind of immorality, and the Corinthians needed to learn that. Okay, the next one, chapter 6, verse 1, trusting God when you live in a society, what I call a litigious society. We have a very litigious society. People threaten to sue over everything and sue over everything. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Right? Trusting God for justice in a litigious society. Well, you know, uh, Dion backed into my car, and if I go to church about it, they might correct him and he'll, I'll get my car fixed. But if I sue him, I can make a lot of money. <laughs> Oh, no, no, you don't understand. I have a lot of emotional damage. <laughs> Actually, that would happen if I backed into Dion's car. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Dion's got a Challenger. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> so, so uh, trusting God for, for justice. Chapter 7, God honoring marriages. God honoring marriages. Chapter 7, I'm not going to try to read one passage. There's a whole lot in there. But the world does, the, the church does not dare to take its understanding of what marriage is from the world. Because our world cannot even define marriage. Our world is falling apart on the understanding of what marriage is and are rejecting it altogether. The church is the church. We, we, we're not them. 
We don't take our guide from them. Corinth does not get to come in here. Okay? Uh, moving on, Christian liberty and how to use it, chapter 8. Uh, it's difficult and it gets a lot of space, uh, this issue of Christian liberty. Uh, you have freedom in Christ, but others may be af- uh, offended by the way you use that freedom in Christ. If using your freedom causes other people to stumble, then give up your freedom. Chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, how to do the Lord's Supper. This is one that, that uh, the world doesn't seem to have much impact in, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, chapters 12 through 14, biggest section, spiritual gifts are used for the building up of the body. And this is something specifically within the church, but it had to do with a focus on me. The Corinthian church in the use of their spiritual gifts was very me-oriented. Look at what gift I have. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can, aren't you impressed by me? And the answer is, no, don't you understand? These are for the building up of the body. So the spiritual gift issue is, is big in the book of Corinth. Uh, chapter 15, we finally get to something that's actually theological. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's an awesome passage. 1 Corinthians 15 is about, about the resurrection. And, and uh, do, do, first of all, he starts with, if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is foolishness. And you will fall, come across people who call themselves Christians who don't believe Christ rose from the dead. And this is something that went back to 30 years after Christ rose from the dead. You go, how could they lose grasp of that so quickly? Well, it goes back to the desire to look wise, the desire to look intelligent. And, 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 and so he's got this, this issue on raising from the dead, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but his basic point is without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. And then chapter 16 is, is kind of just some closing things. But the uh, best way to put it, Corinth is a messed up church. It is a messed up church. It is a church in a messed up society, and it is made up of people from a messed up society. And so they're bringing their messed upness, messed upicity, <laughs> into the church. And the book, of, the book of Corinthians is written to help them get it back out so that they can be in Corinth but not of Corinth. Now, it doesn't take much discussion after all that, hearing this description of Corinth and listening to the issues in the book to come to this conclusion, we live in Corinth. It screams off these pages. It screams off these issues as I read them. I don't think there's anybody here who's going to argue and say, you're right, we live in Corinth. We, 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 we live in a place with the standards and the mistakes and way more opportunity for indulgence than they ever thought of. We live, but, but, but here is the huge difference between their situation and ours. They live in a place that never knew Christianity, and Christianity was being introduced and making inroads, and we live in a place where Christianity has always been known, and yet it's being pushed out, and we look the same. And that, I don't know how, what, what the right, I don't think that's a shame on us thing. I think it's a, a recognition of the world we live in. I, I believe scripture teaches a Christianity that loses in this world but gains eternal life. When I say loses in this world, I mean we're not making it better every day in every way, and it's not that we don't try. We make the impact that, that, that we're allowed to make. That I've, you know, we've, If you were here, we've done Revelation. <laughs> we find that the Antichrist wins until Jesus comes back. When he comes back, then the church wins. And, and I think we're nearing that time, and I think what we see happening in our world is part of the evidence of that. But in the meantime, we need to be in Corinth, but not of Corinth. In the meantime, the church needs to be the church because there are people out there who can still be saved. <laughs> you know, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, there's still a lot of people who can be saved between today and tomorrow. There are, but there's still work to do, uh, and there's a lot to do. What we find we have in common is, is that we find the 
that Corinth's trying to make itself at home in the church, and our job is to keep, uh, keep it out, even as we live in the midst of it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask that you give us wisdom. Whether it looks wise in the eyes of the world or not, let us be wise in your eyes and pleasing to you. I ask you to give us a backbone to stand on the wisdom you give us. Let us be faithful and true and honoring you. Let us be, be the kind of people that when you come back, you are pleased with us. I ask in Jesus' name.